Hi, this is the podcast recording of Generations Home Church with Noah Johnson. Enjoy. All right, well, we are in Exodus. Um, last week we kind of talked about that really the kind of one of the major themes or ideas that we see as we keep going through Exodus is we see over and over that the Lord wants people to know him. And so we see that as Genesis ends, we're kind of in this really weird spot where the last person that it seemed like really uh, was walking with the Lord and to know the Lord, Joseph is dead. He's buried, he's put in the grave. And then as we open Exodus and we kind of ran through the entire book to see all the places where the Lord says, you know, know me. And so he says, Pharaoh, you're going to know who I am. And Israel, you're going to know who I am. And in fact, Pharaoh, I've raised you up for this purpose. I'm going to, I'm going to strike you down and destroy you because you won't submit to me. But I have a reason behind that. And my reason is that the ends of the earth would know that I am the Lord and that I create all things, that all things are under my domain. And so we saw that. Um, this week I want to jump further into Exodus, but as I was studying to go in, the other thing that was really, uh, that really stuck out to me was the idea of, of exile. And so as we kind of started gathering together, we had those, those first several weeks where we kind of just talked about just, I kind of just poured out my heart to all of you guys about kind of where I was at and what I felt like the Lord had put on my heart. And then we jumped into Genesis and we kind of wanted to lay this foundation. And we saw that in the beginning, and we've talked about this multiple times and you guys are probably a little bit annoyed with it, but we saw that in the beginning, as we looked at the garden of Eden, that really this garden was, was the temple of God on earth. And so in our minds, we think of a garden, maybe in a valley, but really the Bible talks about in other verses, though it's not in Genesis, that Eden was up on top of this mountain. And up on top of this mountain was also where the presence of God dwelt. It was his temple. So it was this garden mountaintop temple where we lived in God's presence. And we've talked about how in Revelation, we see the same type of thing. That literally the new Jerusalem will come down out of heaven and it will set upon Mount Zion. And there will be this lush garden where rivers are flowing out and where the tree of life is planted along the edges of the river. And not just one tree, but multiple trees of life. And that this is a garden, another garden scene with rivers and plants and flats, uh, just beauty. But it's also the city of God. And we're told it's also there that God will dwell. It's his, his presence is there. His temple is there. And so we talked about that the entire um, thrust or movement of scripture is God talking about his interactions with humanity, that it's to take us we were at the mountaintop with God. He was our God. And then we fell away. And the entire movement of scripture is to get us back to the mountaintop in his presence again. And so what strikes you as you first get into Exodus is there's a sudden flip. And so all we've seen since Genesis 3, basically, is this constant exile. There is a constant movement away from God. Sometimes, I mean, it's always started by us, by our actions, but then the judgment is always further away from the presence of God. Um, and so I kind of, I kind of want to talk about that today. And it, 
we're not going to go super deep into Exodus itself, but I believe it's the other kind of theme of Exodus is Exodus is the first movement in scripture where that gets flipped and the exile begins to end. We have been pushed out from the presence of God. We've been exiled. And now in Exodus, there's a change. God says, now I'm going to take my people out of exile and I'm going to bring them closer and closer and closer into my presence. And at the end of Exodus, it says, it says this. I'll read it real quick. This is the last verse of Exodus. It's Exodus 40. Uh, they have obviously they've left Egypt. They've gone through the Red Sea. They have gone through the wilderness. They've come to Mount uh, Horeb or Mount um, Moriah, where the or I'm sorry, Sinai, where the Lord um, gives them the law. And Moses actually dwells in the presence of the Lord for 40 days. And it says that the finger of God actually writes out the commandments on the stone tablets that He brings down. After that, a whole bunch of different things happen. Usually, it's many acts of rebellion by the children of Israel and the Lord um, sticks with them despite that. Oftentimes through the... Um... <laughs> oh, good sneeze, Juice. Um, and it's often really through the, the intercession of Moses. There's this intercession that keeps happening. Moses says, don't give up on him. Lord says, okay. And then something else will happen. The Lord says, okay, I'm done. And Moses says, don't Lord. And we see kind of this type of Christ, this image of Christ constantly interceding for us. But as we go, we continue to go through Exodus. What we see is then they are given this blueprint. Moses is given a blueprint from the Lord. And this blueprint is how to build a temple, a tabernacle. And Moses says, be careful that you follow every little instruction I've given you because what you're making is actually an image on earth of what actually exists in the heavenly realm. And so be very careful that you do exactly according to the blueprint. And now as we enter the end of Exodus, what we see is the tabernacle has been completed. The sacrifices that God has given the children of Israel to make to now come into his presence for the first time, this is the first time since Adam and Eve were in Eden before they ate of the fruit that they are able to come into the presence of Yahweh again. And we read this at the end. So the tabernacle's done, the sacrifices have been made. Verse 34 of chapter 40 in Exodus says, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud rested on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The Israelites set out. Whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle throughout all the stages of their journey. And if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and there was a fire inside, and I'm sorry, inside the cloud by night, visible to the entire house of Israel throughout all the stages of their journey. And so Exodus is amazing in that, yes, it's God's new declaration to the world who he is, because he had already declared himself to the world <clears throat> at creation. The world knew who he was. Everyone knew who the Lord was. And even after the exile out of the garden, when the Lord pushed Adam and Eve out of the garden, the people knew who he was. 
But they kept making choices away from the Lord and they kept getting expelled further and further from his presence. And now Exodus is this flip. The whole trajectory and movement of the story or of the actual um, interaction of man and God together, of God's interaction with us, is no longer expulsion. It's the beginning of the road back. And so it's just, it's this awesome, awesome thing. And so that's kind of what I want to focus on today a little bit. So. Kind of interesting that it's named Exodus. And yet. Yeah, it's like they're exiting the, the expulsion, the exile almost. And so I, I wrote this, God is our creator, but he is also the giver and sustainer of life. To be with him and connected to him is life. To be separated from him or expelled from his presence is death. So there's this idea as we're walking along in this world, and it still exists today, that much as a baby is born and that baby is connected and sustained through that life-giving cord, the umbilical cord. But at some point that once the baby's born, that is cut. But we, as God's children, as his offspring, those created by him, still have this tether connected to him. Even though we have died, and even though the Lord said, when you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. We still see Adam and Eve are going about alive, but their life has been shrunken, truncated. Uh, it's not vibrant anymore. It's not abundant. It's not good. So there's death and life now are mixed together. But everyone who's walking around in this world still has this dried up kind of dead umbilical cord that's connecting them to God. That's saying, I, you, were, you were mine. And we see this in many ways, that our conscience uh, in Ecclesiastes, it talks about that God has put eternity in our hearts. In John, it says that um, in, in the gospel of John, in the first chapter, it says in him, speaking of Jesus, was life. And that life was the light of mankind. So our very breath, our very life is really the Lord showing who he is to us. Light. His, his revelation, his light, his goodness is really in each and every one of us. And the Bible says further on in that, in that verse that his, that light was, well, I won't butcher it. I'll just read it. That'll be easier than me misquoting it. So, um, where is it? Uh, verse four, and him was life and that light was the in that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Now it says somewhere else in here, and I should have looked this up prior, um, but it basically says that, that everyone who comes into the world is enlightened by that light. If somebody else sees it, let me know. <laughs> I don't want to keep searching for it forever in here because we have a lot to get through. Um, Oh, here it is. Verse eight. He, speaking of John the Baptist, he was not the light, but he came to testify about the light, Jesus, the true light, again, Jesus, that gives light to everyone, that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So Jesus who gives light to everyone. It's not a select few. All of us, by the very act of being born, are partaking in God's life that he breathed into Adam. So, I want us to kind of keep that in mind as we go through. And the other thing that I want you guys to keep in mind is not only are we connected in that way and through our conscience, but there's also the idea of we are his image bearers. We bear the image of God. 
So I want to read a couple verses and I'm actually gonna ask people to open up to verses and have you read them because there's just so many, it'll take too long. So if somebody would read Genesis 2, 6. Okay, if somebody else will read Acts 17, 26 through 29. Okay, uh, Genesis 1, 27. <laughs> well, if you do all of them, then it's going to go just as slow as if I look them up. Uh, James 3, 8 through 10. Okay. All right. So before we begin those, I want to read something about what I kind of had talked about just a moment ago about us being in the state of exile. So I wrote this in a notebook on my phone when I was thinking about it. Um, since the exile of the garden, life has been filled with death, with suffering, with expulsion, evil. Adam and Eve suffered. They watched their son Abel die. He was killed by their own son Cain. They were cast out of the presence of God in Eden, and Cain was cast further out of the presence of God into the land of Nod for his rebellion. In Genesis 6, we see that man has become so evil that the only intent of their heart all the time is evil. And only Noah is found to be righteous. And again, an exile from life happens where the Lord literally wipes out the population of the whole earth, except for Noah. And Noah had to watch as this happened. So you imagine it says in Peter that he was a preacher of righteousness for 120 years. He went about warning people. There was room on the boat. He was mocked, ridiculed, and even after the flood began, Noah and his seven family members were on the ark. The animals were on the ark. The flood began, and the door was still open. It's not until the water level begins to rise, it says, and then the Lord shut him in. That whole time, Noah is warning the population. So Noah had to see everyone he knew die. Later at the Tower of Babel, man is again exiled, this time from one another. By the confusion of their language, they are dispersed and they are pushed out from each other. Not only this, but they are disinherited from God. We've talked about uh, in, in a bunch of other uh, teachings where the Lord uh, we, it's from, I think, uh, Deuteronomy 32. The Lord actually gave the nations over to the sons of God, to these other spiritual beings to rule over them. And he took Israel alone as his portion and inheritance. And even after he called Abraham, all we see is suffering and exile. Abraham is called a sojourner in a foreign land. He's an immigrant. That's not his land. He is taken from his land in Ur of the Chaldees and he's brought to Canaan and he lives there as a foreigner. Those aren't his kin. Those aren't his people. If anything, they would be against him because he's coming in as an interloper. Abraham suffered as he went, as he went through his life. Uh, he had to send his son Ishmael away. Hagar had to watch as Ishmael almost died. So she also took part in this exile and this suffering. 
as we go on through Abraham, the, this, this godly man who God chooses to be the one that he's going to bring the promise of full restoration through, even his family is filled with exile and suffering. Jacob steals his brother's birthright from his blind father through an act of deception and his brother wants to kill him. So he exiles himself to go live in a foreign land with his uncle Laban. His life is filled with suffering as he ends up having not one wife whom he loves, but four wives. So all of his children live in this broken state of knowing that they're not their dad's favorite. His wives live in the state of knowing, three of them live in the state of knowing they're not their husband's favorite. And so all we see is constant suffering. Finally, one of those sons emerges as a good godly man. And what happens to him? Even more suffering. Joseph is sold to Egypt as a slave because of the jealousy of his brothers. And then we see Joseph die. That is the entire story up to this point. Exile, suffering, exile, suffering, further and further pushed away from God. And then we get to Exodus. And we talked about a couple weeks ago, right before Genesis ends, we have this little glimmer of hope where Joseph says, hey, when I die, bear, don't bury me. Put my bones in a place so you can take them with you when you go, because God will surely visit you and fulfill his promise to bring us back to the land of Canaan. Um, will somebody read Genesis 2.6? Whoever said they would read that. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Oh, is that the entire? <laughs> that is, obviously you can see how that connects. <laughs> <laughs> I you were um, will you keep will you keep going yeah to the part where it talks about the Lord breathing into the nostrils okay. call reading between the lines <laughs> <laughs> then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being okay so right here what I want to point out here is that idea of life life begins with the Lord and right then the Lord breathes the breath of life into Adam and he becomes a living being now we know, the Bible talks about, especially in Romans, we know the idea of we're dead in our sins. But what I want to show you is that there's still the idea of life being, even in the unsaved, even in those who are, who are still dead in the, in the idea that they don't have a relationship with the Lord, there is an idea of still having life. Uh, will somebody read from Acts 17, 26 through 29, whoever was going to do that? And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us. Will you continue? I think it says, for in Him we live. And for in Him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. Okay, so... No, would you mind? Yeah. Would you read that all again? Yeah, like an accent or something. <laughs> and he made no, it's just, it's, it's just a joke. From one man, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us, for in Him we live and breathe. Live and move and have our being. Okay, so it says he's, we're actually, he's talking at the Areopagus in Athens to pagans, to Greeks. And he's saying to them, but actually in reality, none of us are very far from him. 
And then the way that he makes that connection or the way that he proves that, it says, these are the people that don't know the Lord. They're dead in their transgressions, dead in their sins. At least that's the way that we would think about it. And yet he says, he's not far from any of us because in fact, in him, you live and you have your very movement, your ability to move and your very being exists by him. So that's what I'm talking about, about this tether that is still there. So we are dead, and yet that death hasn't taken full, uh, hasn't fully captured us yes, yet. It's enclosing upon us, but we are not dead yet. We're alive, we're living, we're moving. We have our being in his life. Just like it said in John, that our life is actually from him. And that life is our light. It's our, it's, uh, it enlightens us to the fact that there is a God. So he's not far from you. In fact, he's so close to you that the very existence that you have is happening in him. Now, that doesn't mean I'm not saying, oh, those people then are saved and they're, they're going to be in God's presence. They're not. But what I'm trying to show you guys is that in the garden, we have this life in the Lord. And yet even now, even though it's a, just a shadow of what it was, it's still there in some sort of form. So we were in the garden, we were in the presence of God, we had the life of God, and we bore the image of God. And so as we see, we still have somewhat of his life, even when we walk around in this world, apart from him. All right. If Basically, is it saying that, because even though you may not acknowledge or have knowledge of God, apart from him, really nothing exists. That's right, exactly. So it talks about in Colossians that... Um, his being. The, the, very, um, the very world itself is held together by the power of his presence or the power. I forget exactly how it goes. Okay, the power. But basically the existence itself, everything that exists, the very atoms that, hold, that make up the world that we know are held together by his power. So there is, there's no way to escape who he is. He would have to deny that he created us. Right. For that to be true. Right. For us to not be his offspring, to not have connection with him, to not know that there is a spiritual being yep. that, that I'm responsible to. Exactly. And every waking moment, we're living that reality. And even when we deny it, we're denying something that's so um, so built into us that to even deny it means that, well, you couldn't even exist then. Nothing could exist. Um, so it's a deep hope. Okay, so the other idea then, so we talked about the presence, uh, the life, and the image. So the other idea is the image. Um, whoever said they would read uh, Genesis one twenty seven. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay, so we are, you know, this is the idea of Imago Dei in the Latin. We're creating the image of God. We bear his image. Just um, the idea was in the ancient Near East, when you would enter a territory that was let's say under Nebuchadnezzar, as you entered that territory, there would be a statue there that bore the image of Nebuchadnezzar, basically telling you this is his. Like you're entering his territory, all this is his. And so we go around in the world that God created with that same idea. We're his image bearers. Wherever somebody goes and they see us, they say, ah, this is Yahweh's. How do I know? There's his image. There's the thing that bears his image that lets me know this is his. And so we are these image bearers of the Lord. And yet, I think it's pretty clear, even from Genesis 6, we're not bearing his image very well when he says something like, I regret that I made man because the only imagination and intent of his heart is only evil all the time. 
That's not really bearing the image of God very well. And yet, if we read James, whoever had James 3, 8 through 10, we'll see that even in the New Testament, that idea is still there. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our God and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Okay, so James' rebuke to the church is, you bless people, but then you also curse people who are made in the very image of God. So even New Testament theology and teaching is based on the idea that these people, the world at large, still bears the image of God. So even though we've been cast out and exiled from his presence, we still bear these markings that we once lived there. We still bear that life to a certain degree, though it's not what it once was and though it's now mixed with death. We still bear his image, even though that image has been marred and tarnished and twisted, it still exists. I just think it's an interesting thing with everything that's happening today to just meditate on that because it would be easy to look out at all of the people who are doing evil to other people and to have that stir up in us hatred. And I think God wants us to see those people as people that he loves and that he yep. desires to become one with them to know. Yeah, he does. Pray for those people, not curse them, not mm -hmm. say things that that demean. To remember that somewhere inside that is the image of God, just mm -hmm. waiting to burst forth. Yep, which is very encouraging to me. I find that very sad. So our original state was one of life from God and the likeness of God, but we sinned in the garden. We were warned of death but we chose death rather than life. And then in Genesis 3, 22 through 24, it says this. This is the beginning of our exile. The Lord God said, since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove the man out of this out and stationed the cherubim and the flame and a, the flaming whirling sword east of the garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. So now man is exiled. And yet, as we just read, we still have this kind of marred image of God and we still have this life that was given from God. And yet what we really see here is though, we're not seeing any place where we're in his presence. Mm -hmm. And so what we begin to see in Exodus is this turn to uh, be brought back into his presence. So what we, we saw as we just read through, or as we just kind of did a brief recap of the thousands of years up to this point in Exodus is exile is death. Because leaving the presence of God is to leave life, and it is, it is a death sentence, eventually. Now, they didn't die that m minute, but something began to die in them that instant. Okay, we talked about the exile that constantly takes us further and further. Um, however, through this exile and suffering, we see one constant promise. God will be with us. 
He will aid us and he will bring us out of this time of sojourning in the exile and he will bring us back to the mountain, back to the temple, back to the garden, and most of all, back to himself. And we will be in his presence again. So I want to look through and see that what, what I really want us to take away from this is that even though these people all the way through from Genesis 3 all the way to the Exodus now are in exile, there is a certain group of them that don't define themselves as being in exile, but how they define themselves is as sojourners. And the idea of sojourner being, yes, I'm not living in my homeland, but I, this also isn't my place forever. Those who are, who, are, who are dead, who are apart from God, that exile becomes their forever. That becomes their eternity. That becomes their home. Exile becomes their home. But yet people like Abraham and his children, they don't see the exile as their home. In fact, they're looking for another home. They only see it as a place they're passing through. But to those people, there was a promise. So yes, they, they were living as sojourners. They were living as exiles. But Abraham had a promise from God that that exile wouldn't last forever. Because he says to them, I'm going to give you and your descendants this land, Canaan. It will be your home. So I want to look at this idea that even though we're in exile, there's a certain group of people that even though they're exiled from the presence of God, God goes out to be with them. He goes out and finds them to be with them. So we see in Genesis uh, 6, 8 through 9, it says this of Noah. Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. These are the family records of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries, and Noah walked with God. So what we're going to see is this constant interplay, though, too. If God is with us, we must be with him. Uh, it talks about, I think it's in, uh, it's, I think it's in Malachi, but it might be at the end of Zechariah, but it says, uh, return to me and I will return to you. It's, it's always this idea of fidelity, of loyalty, of marriage, where if one party is unfaithful, it makes it very hard for that marriage to work. But if that party that was unfaithful will come back, the Lord's always faithful. He's always the faithful husband and will constantly take back his disloyal bride. So that's the whole idea of if, return to me and I'll return to you. Like, I'm not looking to not be with you. I want to be with you, but you must return to me. And so we see with Noah, Noah finds grace with God. Why? Well, he walked with God. So he was with God. God was with him. Uh, we see all through Genesis 12 through about 28, the Lord is with Abram. And he says, he gives him all these promises. I'm going to make you a great nation that will be a blessing to all the nations on earth. And over and over, I'm going to give you this land and I'm going to do this for you. And I'm going to give you descendants over and over. We see the Lord is with Abraham. In Genesis 26, uh, two through three, the Lord reiterates this promise to Isaac. He says to Isaac, in verse two, the Lord appeared to him, speaking of Isaac and said, do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land that I tell you about. Stay in this land as an alien. Again, that idea of sojourner. And I will be with you 
I'll be with you. You know, we sing that song, it seems like every week because it, it, we like it. <laughs> um, but that, that is kind of the key to this life because what I want to get to here eventually is the idea that, yes, Abraham's descendants were exiles. And yes, they had a promise that he would, that God would visit them and bring them out of exile and give them a homeland in Canaan. And so they, Joseph puts his faith in this. He says, hey, when the Lord comes to get you guys out, when he comes to help you, comes to rescue you, comes to redeem you, take me with you, take my bones with you because he will visit you. He believes, he believes that the Lord will fulfill his promises to be with his people. And the promise to the Israelites is you will be given a homeland. We as Christians are in a similar state. We are exiles. We are not in our homeland and we don't have a promise like Israel that we're going to be given a physical land. Well, at least not in the way that we think. The Bible actually says we will be given the entire land. Everything that is the earth is the Lord's and it will be his people forever. It will belong to us. It's our inheritance. The Bible says that when we think about heaven, we, we always, we conjure these images of going up to clouds. the clouds and sitting there with harps. And these aren't the images that the Lord gives us really, really in, in revelation and through the rest of the Bible, what it talks about is the earth being remade a new heaven and a new earth. And by new, he means without the death, without the sin, without the exile, fully within his realm. That's why, it's, that's why Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven. And then he says, your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. Heaven coming down to earth. We will not go up to be with the Lord. He will come down to be with us. Now that's not to say that when we die, our spirit won't go to be in the presence of the Lord while we await the consummation of all things. I'm not saying that, but what I'm saying is our eternal home is on this earth perfectly remade, living forever in new bodies as the Lord has. So when in scripture talks about us being sojourners and aliens, is that, is that in reference to the, the world powers and we don't belong with them? Yeah, well, our citizenship's in heaven. Everything that has to do with this world. We're here. We're here, just like Abraham was in his land that he would inherit. That's what's so cool about it. Abraham was in a land where he was an alien, a foreigner, a sojourner, but it was his land, but it just hadn't been given over to him yet. We are here in our land. We're aliens, we're sojourners. And yet this land will be given to us someday. We're already living in the land that we will possess on the earth. And so there's this constant mirror image. And that's why in the New Testament, it tells us that the things written about Israel were actually given for our instruction to teach us. We need to look back at them and say, not like, oh my gosh, Abraham, I need to be just like him. He was great. Abraham made a lot of mistakes. Uh, Moses made a lot of mistakes. Lot made a lot of mistakes. I mean, there's a lot of people throughout the Old Testament that you're like, what? David, like, why would you want me to be like these people? They're, they're scumbags in a lot of ways. They are. But they're redeemed and their eyes are constantly on the promise. 
And so what we see with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is they are exiles. They are aliens and sojourners, and they're walking through the land with their hope not on the land. It's on something to come. I mean, it's kind of cool when you think of it again in terms of today with all the political turmoil and what's going to happen in our country. And we can just maybe take a deep breath and just relax to know, oh, eventually our country's going to be in good hands. Eventually it's going to be ruled over by the Lord. Mm-hmm. And we're going to live in a place where we have total fellowship and we only look to serve yep. one another and to be servant leaders. And, yeah. and that can be, I think, really... And those nations that were cast out at Babylon, at the ta- I'm sorry, at the Tower of Babel, are all going to be brought back in. When John in Revelation sees the vision of the people worshiping God, and he says, I saw myriads upon myriads and every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every language praising the Lord. That's the reversal of what happened at Babylon. In Babylon, they are exiled. They are dispersed. They are sent out. And he picks one little group for himself. He says, you guys, you Ben Elohim, you, you spiritual beings that have rebelled against me, you guys, I, I, I'm done with you, and I'm done with the people that keep worshiping you. You go, you take them. I'm going to take this little tiny portion for myself. And this little tiny portion, Jacob, Israel, is sojourning around. They're making a lot of mistakes, but God is with them. We see the same promise to Jacob. He says in Genesis 28, 15, as Jacob is fleeing Esau, who wants to kill him, on his way to Laban's, he lays down at this place that will later be called Bethel, the house of God, puts a rock under his head for a pillow, goes to sleep. He sees angels ascending and descending as though they were on a staircase going up to heaven. It says in verse 15, the Lord appears to him and says, look, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. You guys, that is the exact same promise that we are given by Jesus. And lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. What will happen at the end of the age? He will bring us back to this land to rule and reign over the earth forever with him. In an earth where the lion lays with the lamb, the calf lays with the wolf, the baby plays with the cobra, there is no tear, there is no sadness, there is no sorrow. We see with Joseph the same thing. In Genesis 39, 2, as he's sold into slavery, it says, and the Lord was with him. And then later, as he's sent to prison, after being accused of rape of Potiphar's wife, again, as he's sent into prison, it says, but the Lord was with him. That's the huge but in our lives. All this is going to crap. All this is falling apart. So much suffering in this exile. Ah, but, and it's a huge but, the Lord is with you. Through this sojourn, through this time of being an alien in a foreign land where you are a foreigner, you are a citizen of another land, a land that exists in another realm right now called heaven. But one one day soon, heaven and earth will become one and your citizenship... will be realized and you will be with the Lord. I want to read Exodus 3. This is the beginning of this new promise, this new movement back toward God. And we will see that even in Exodus, we see the beginning of this promise happening with Moses, of this with you idea. 
Meanwhile, well, uh, meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. And as Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire, but it was not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, he answered. Do not come any closer, he said. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Now, this is going to be a teaching that might take a couple weeks that I'm going to go into at some point. I want to go into the whole idea of the angel of the Lord and that really there's an idea of that being God in human flesh throughout the entire Old Testament. I'm not going to go into it right now because it's, there's a whole bunch to go into, but I just want to point out that the angel of the Lord calls out to Moses. When Moses goes over to see it, the angel of the Lord, who does he say he is? I'm, I'm God. And then he's obviously a physical being that you can see because it says, if, if, if this is an invisible being, you don't need to hide your face because there's no way you can see it. He sees someone. And so when he hears it's God, he says, oh my gosh, I can't look at God. So I just, I want to point that out just as a, a precursor of something that will come at some point down the road when I'm uh, studied up enough to be able to actually tackle that uh, somewhat appropriately, hopefully. Um, so he says... Yeah, so then he continued, I'm the God of your, uh, of your fathers. And Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And verse seven says, Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt and have heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their sufferings. And I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians. See, the Lord has come to them. He's going to be with them. And to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. This is our same promise. It's different. We, didn't, we haven't been told that we're going to be given the land of the Canaanites. We've been told that we're going to be given the whole earth. The territory of the Canaanites, the Hethites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. So because the Israelites cry for help has come to me, and I have also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, go, I am sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses asked God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And he answered, I will certainly be with you. Now, what does the Lord not say to Moses? Well, Moses, you're a great guy. You're the most, you're the meekest man to ever live. You are strong. You were, you were educated in the household. of. Pharaoh. He says none of that. When Moses says, who am I? He says, he doesn't, he doesn't even respond to, to Moses' real question. He says, no, 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 Moses, you're not getting this. I will be with you. Well, who am I? It's not about you. I will be with you. I am with you. That's what makes it possible. It's not be, none of this has anything to do with your power, with your ability, with your strength, with your courage. None of it. It's me. I said, I will be with you. And because I'm with you, these things will happen. So just as we had seen all the way through that he's with, 
Noah. He's with Abraham. He's with Isaac, Jacob, with Joseph. Now here he says, Moses, I'm going to be with you, but I'm going to be with you now to fulfill my promise to end the children of Abraham's exile and bring you to your homeland so that you can have a home finally. And as we saw at the end of Exodus, the whole point of that was to bring them into the presence of God, where his cl- his, the cloud of his glory goes, his presence descends, and for the first time since the garden, we are in, humanity is again in the presence of Yahweh. Okay, I want to read a couple verses about what God, I I know we've talked about he's bringing us back to the mountain over and over, but I also want to talk about what he's doing. Remember what our state was in the garden. In the garden, we bore the image of God. In the garden, we had the life of God in the presence of God. And so I want to read to you guys Colossians 3, 4. I want you guys to see that God is actually bringing back everything, not just one thing, not just we'll be back in the garden, but everything that that included everything that that encompassed. If somebody else would uh, turn to uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 49, just say, okay. Uh, somebody else, 2 Corinthians 3, 18. Okay. Somebody else, Romans 8, 29. Okay. All right. And then I will read Colossians 3, 4. Okay, I want, I want you guys, again, to think about the idea of life, not the, not the truncated life that we have because we left the presence of God in the garden, but true life, abundant life that Jesus talks about. Uh, Colossians 3, verse 3 starts this way. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We are being brought back to life. Yes, we're being brought back to the garden. Yes, we're being brought back to paradise. But we're also being brought back to fullness of life. Not that truncated, tied off umbilical cord that can't get any life. Full, abundant life. Again, fully connected in union with the creator of all things. John 1, I don't really think I need to read that because we already read it, but... In the Gospel of John, it talks about, again, that Jesus is life. To know him is to know life. Okay, I want to talk about the image. Not only are we being brought back to the garden of God, not only are we being brought back to full, true life with God, we are being brought back to being perfect image bearers of God. Uh, Whoever has 1 Corinthians 15, 49. I think that was you. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Okay, we are going to bear the image. What Paul is contrasting there is Adam and Christ. We bear the image of the sinful, earthy man, Adam. But we will bear the image of Jesus Christ. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18 
And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed to the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Okay, so... The Bible says that we are actually through Christ, the fulfillment, part of the fulfillment of the New Testament promise is that we will be made into the image of Christ. We were made in the image of God. God breathed his life into Adam. Adam bore the image of God. And then we see very quickly, we twist that image. We mar that image. We no longer resemble that image, though we carry around part of it. And yet the Bible says that we as Christians who are sojourning through this exile, waiting to be brought to our heavenly home, which will be heaven here on earth, are every day from glory to glory being transformed into whose image? God's image. We're going back to the garden. Everything that the garden encompassed, everything that that meant, we are being brought back to that. Okay, finally, uh, Romans 8.29 on this point. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So, before we were ever born, before the world ever began, God knew, foreknew, that just means knew beforehand, who we were. He knew it beforehand and he predestined a mechanism, that was the gospel, by which we might be transformed into the image of his son. That we might take back that imago Dei. Okay, the final part of that, and probably the most easy to recognize, is the presence we left the garden, which meant we left life, we left his image, and we left his presence. Revelation 22.1 says this. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, down the middle of the city's main street. And the tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. Again, just that idea of a redeemed world, not just in the spring, not just at harvest, every single month there's a harvest. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations and there will no longer be any curse. The curse in Genesis 3 is gone. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will worship Him and they will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. We will be in God's presence. We are sojourning. We are exiles. That's okay. He's promised He will be with us just as Jesus said, I will be with you even until the end of the age. Do not lose that hope. That's our hope. Our hope is not. You will be healthy if you put your faith in Jesus. You will be wealthy if you put your faith in Jesus. Everything will be perfect for you. Your best life now. None of that is the gospel message. None of that is the promise of our God. That's actually the promise of this world. Do this, this, and this, and you'll have everything you want in this world. That's the antithesis of what God promises us. What he promises us is this. You are in exile. You will suffer. Your life has been truncated. Your image has been marred. But I have desired that you will be with me and I will be with you if you are faithful. 
and I will walk with you just like I did Joseph, just like I did Abraham, just like I did Moses, just like I did the children of Israel. I will be with you until the end of your sojourning in this land that will one day be yours. John 17 is Jesus' intercessory prayer for us. Yeah. You know, that we are in the world. Mm. I pray that you will protect them from the evil one. And this is part of our sojourning, as you mentioned. Yeah. You know, but we are one with him. Mm. We are connected through that umbilical cord, through the Holy Spirit. Yep. And uh, yeah, so anyway. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's beautiful. And the beautiful part about the scriptures is there is no gap. There is no space. Whenever we see something where it seems like I see this truth and I see this truth and I see this gap between them that doesn't make sense, that's just because we're missing it. Mm -hmm. Because something is there that ties it all together and interwines it. And it's so tight that there actually is no room between. What we see is we're living the exact same life that Abraham lived with just different promises. Abraham's promise was a small promise that he didn't see the full scope of. We see the full scope of the promise. We know that when he said, I will be with you and make you a great nation, what he meant was, I'm going to make you the nation of Israel. What he meant was a nation of priests. What that meant was we as the Gentiles would eventually be adopted into that family, graft into that tree, and that we, the nation of God, under the kingship of Jesus would be a nation of priests. That's what we become as Christians. That's what Revelation talks about. Is Revelation talking about, when he talks about us being a, a kingdom of priests, he's not just talking about Israel. He's talking about all those who came to faith through the plan he had, through Israel, through Israel's Messiah. All of it is interwoven and all of it was the same thing from the beginning. I want you to be with me. I want to be one with you. And I want you to be one with me. That is our hope. That is our hope. And that was the beginning of the hope that is breaking forth at Exodus. The end of exile. The end of suffering. Now, did that happen when they went to the land? Did their exile truly end? Did their suffering really end? Did death really end? No. It was the beginning. The breaking forth of this new thing that was going to start. And it would take thousands of years to fully materialize. And we are still seeing it. We are still living in the now, but not yet. Are we saved? Would everybody here say that we're saved? And yet we all know that we haven't fully received salvation yet, right? Because the Bible says that Jesus, when he comes, will bring salvation with him. What does that mean? How can we be saved and yet not totally saved? Well, we all live it every day. We know exactly what that means intuitively. We know that I know that I'm saved. And yet I know I'm still full of sin. I know I'm a saint. And yet I struggle with sin every day. So there's this idea of the beginning of the breaking forth of the promise. And yet it has not been fully consummated. Just like David, when David, when Samuel came to David, when he was still just a shepherd boy, he anointed him king over Israel. And yet it was years, decades of his life before the full consummation of that promise and of that anointing happened. And he actually became king. He was a shepherd boy. He was a worship leader, basically, for Saul to push away that evil spirit that Saul would get. He was a warrior under Saul. He eventually became the chief warrior the head of his army. And then after that, after Saul died, he became the king. 
And so that is the same type of sojourn, the same type of exile we are living right now. We are saved and yet we wait for that salvation that is to come. Um, I just want to finish with that idea of, of exile. I'll read real quick from Hebrews 11. Okay, Hebrews 11, it's called the Hall of Faith. Uh, I'm sure you guys are all familiar with it. It goes through and kind of gives, kind of like the recap I gave of suffering, except this gives a recap of faith through the Old Testament. Uh, Hebrews 11. So verses 1 through uh, 12 kind of all go into this recap of all these people who lived by faith, who sojourned by faith. But then it says this. In verse 13, these all died in faith. So they died in faith, although they had not received the things that were promised. They all believed God's promise and none of them got to see it come to fruition. Abraham didn't get to see his nation. Jacob didn't get to see Judah become the king over all of Israel. Joseph didn't get to see his people brought back to the land. None of these people saw the fullness of the promise. And if Christ tarries, if he waits to return, we will be in the same state. We will die in faith. The Bible says that um, in Corinthians, it talks about faith. It says, uh, we, always, we always quote this. Faith, there's even that country song, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest is love. Well, it goes on to say why. Because faith will cease. When we are living face to face with Jesus Christ on this earth, in the new Jerusalem, worshiping at his temple, and there sits Jesus on the throne of God, will we need faith anymore? No, because faith will be realized. Will we need hope anymore? No, because hope will be, be living, we'll, we'll be living it out. But love will continue forever. That's why it says that. It's not just some random, like, kind of pithy, fun thing. Faith, hope, and love, but the greatest is love. No. Faith, hope, and love, the greatest is love because love continues through all eternity with God. Faith will be realized. Hope will be realized. Love will continue. And here it says, all of these people died in faith, not yet having received what they hoped for, what they had faith in. They waited for it, but they didn't get it. They will get it someday. It says this, uh, these, all, these all died in faith, although they had not received the things that were promised, but they saw them from a distance, greeted them and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth, sojourners and other translations, now, those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they were thinking about where they came from, they would have had opportunity to return. In other words, if what they meant by I'm seeking a homeland is the place I came from, Abraham could have just turned around and gone back to Ur of the Chaldees. But, now, but they now desire a better place, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. He's prepared a city for us. 
and we greet these promises from far off. We see him. I see Jesus coming. Now he's not here yet, but I believe the promise. I know he's going to come. The Bible says, look up for your redemption draws near. I greet it. I, I'm, I'm yelling out, Lord, come. I don't see it though. It hasn't been realized. I only see it from a distance. It's coming. It's coming for all of us. And our job is to continue to sojourn faithfully. How? By faith. Just like all the saints of old. Just like every single one that has gone before us, that has fallen asleep, as Jesus would say. The idea being that they will be woken up one day, revived, brought back to life, resurrected. That's our hope. That city is what they have hoped for. What city is he talking about? The city of God. The city of God. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them and they will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. That is the city that they hoped for, even though they only saw a glimmer. And even though the truth that they knew about it might have been minuscule like Abraham, all I know is that God's going to bless the whole earth through my nation. Yet all along, what he was truly looking for was that city. And Exodus is the beginning of the end of the exile. And we are still living in the exile and we are still aliens and we are still sojourning. But God is with us. Jesus promised, I will be with you. And he will give us the power to walk through it, just like he did to Joseph. Even if it means slavery, even if it means suffering, whatever it means, do not give up your hope in God because your hope is not that he will make your life here rosy and sunny and good. His promise is that he will bring you to his city. Lord, thank you that you are with us, that you will not abandon us, and that even when we sin and we fall down, you pick us up to keep walking down that narrow path. Give us hearts of courage. Give us hearts of hope. Give us hearts of faith. Give us hearts of compassion for those who are still on the broad path and are still living in the eternal exile of death. Let us be those that grab as many as possible and bring them back to you. Help us to be those that preach repentance and return and faith in Jesus. Help us to be those that set other people's eyes on that holy city and let our eyes be always set on that city, Lord. You are our hope, you are our destiny, and you are our destination, Lord. Mm -hmm. We can't wait to be with you again. We love you, help us to love you more. We believe in you, help our unbelief. Continue to make us into your image. May your life overflow us. May we walk in your presence daily as we look forward to that day that we will be fully, completely saved, fully, 
completely full of life, fully, completely your image bearer, and fully and completely in your presence to worship on your holy mountain. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I can't even turn on the